Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. Coming up, U.S. calls for a Palestinian authority to govern Gaza and West Bank after the war with Hamas. Turkey is clashing with the EU over stance on Hamas. And we will take a look at a new round of debate among Republican presidential hopefuls in the United States. And Chinese mainland is urging Estonia against allowing opening a Taiwan office. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. First up. The United States has called for Gaza to be politically unified with the West Bank under the administration of the Palestinian Authority. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on Wednesday provided Washington's most detailed plan so far for Gaza's post-war future, reiterating that Israel should not reoccupy this territory. Blinken has left open the possibility, though, about Israel could play a role in a transitional period. The top American diplomat has traveled to the Middle East twice since Israel declared war on Hamas. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Greg Barton, professor of global Islamic politics with Deakins University in Melbourne, Australia. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be with you. So、uh, Blinken proposed that Israel agree to a 12-hour pause in the fighting as part of an effort to secure the release of civilian hostages. And under his plan, the warring parties would agree to take certain steps towards the hostages' release. And if they are possibly met, then the pause will be extended by another 12 hours. Israel has already rejected a demand by Hamas for a five-day truce to allow for, you know, fuel and other kind of aid into Gaza. So, with that in mind, do you think Israel will agree to Blinken's plan? We we really don't know. What we do know is that、uh, Israel is under a lot of pressure,、uh, mostly behind the scenes from、um, President Biden's administration.、Um, America stands with Israel. And saying that Israel has a right to self-defence, indeed has an obligation to self-defence, but that if it、uh, is involved in excess civilian casualties in the Gaza Strip, that actually undermines its security. And so, one of the the key issues is that we're seeing in the Gaza Strip just terrible human suffering. People are、uh, are not only、um, becoming victims of、uh, rockets and bombs as、uh, Israel tries to deal with Hamas. But then, when they take into hospital, the hospitals don't have enough power to run their systems properly. They don't have enough、uh, medical equipment, including basic facilities like、um, uh, anaesthetics.、Yeah. Uh, and the only way that that can be overcome is through some sort of pause, which will allow some critical supplies into Gaza. Now, Israel is very、uh, sensitive about saying it doesn't want a ceasefire; it has to deal with Hamas. But a humanitarian pause is not a ceasefire. It's, it's allowing the civilians to get critical supplies. I think, in the end,、um, the government of, of Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel will have to agree to what President、uh, Biden is 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 asking for,、uh, because it's just a reasonable request, and Israel、um, is rapidly running out of support. From the international community, and it can't afford to lose, particularly American support. And I think that's what's on the line here.、Mm. So, do you think it is realistic for Gaza to be、uh, sort of politically、uh, unified with the West Bank under the administration of the Palestinian Authority? Well, Dehan, we, we, you know, we're, we're faced with a series of of bad options where there's no good and easy option. So what we do know is that going back to the previous status quo of Hamas being left in charge of the Gaza Strip, a home of 2.3 million people, most of whom never voted for Hamas and don't support Hamas, you know, Israel,、um, particularly the, the very、um, right-wing government,、uh, various government under Netanyahu, but the current government is very much the, the, the most right-wing government. Thought that this was a deal that sort of was a compromise where they could allow Hamas to be the 
the, the the fall guy. I mean, Hamas is of course involved in terrible terrorist attack on 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 seventh or October, the long history of terrorism. But perversely, um, allowing Hamas to be in charge of the Gaza Strip was a way of undermining the uh, the, the Palestinian Authority. It's very clear now that that is not an option to return to. That doesn't work. That's not an option for the future. So somebody else will have to uh, administer the, the Gaza Strip. Logically, there should be a, a continuous administration between the West Bank and the Gaza Strip under the Palestinian Authority. There are some obstacles to getting there at the moment because the Palestinian Authority has lost a lot of its credibility. It doesn't have strong leadership. Um, so we may not get there in one step. But ultimately, you know, we come back to... Um, what was for a long time thought to be an impossible dream of a two-state solution, but in one form or another, the Palestinians need to have an opportunity to have their own nation and rule themselves, including the Gaza Strip, because as hard as that is to achieve, the other options just don't work. They're much worse. Mm. So obviously the United States does not want Israel to reoccupy Gaza, um, Blinken or President Biden has made it has made this point pretty clear, but on the other hand, we noticed that earlier this week, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu he said that Israel would have quote unquote overall security responsibility in Gaza indefinitely. Um, so, with that in mind, uh, do you think Israel will really listen to this U.S. request or U.S. demand that? Israel should not reoccupy this uh, Gaza Strip. Yeah, I think the devil is in the detail, Ding Heng, because ironically, there's actually agreement here between um, President Biden's administration and uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government. Uh, Netanyahu's government, Israel in general, does not want to reoccupy Gaza, but they don't want to allow Hamas to emerge as a threat. Um, they want to control security. Now, the, the problem is they talk about controlling security in the Gaza Strip without reoccupying it. Um, I, I think it is clear they don't want to go back to reoccupying the Gaza Strip, but they can't really get security in the Gaza Strip without some sound administration in place. And what the U.S. is arguing is that if Israel tries to have a kind of de facto occupation, they may in the short term get some level of security through brute force, but because there'll be such resentment and such trauma on the part of the people of Gaza, and we can see what's happening at the moment, that tra trauma is increasing, it won't be a stable situation. It won't guarantee peace. Peace will only come from uh, a just and durable political solution. So I think Israel, uh, you know, it talks tough about wanting to control security, but it doesn't actually want to get back to controlling 2.3 million people in the Gaza Strip. And the U.S. can see that any attempt to do that will will not be uh, a stable solution. So, ironically, there is this agreement. Um, so the question is, who, who who will control the Gaza Strip? A Palestinian authority that was reinvented with a younger leadership. Um, I mean, uh, Mahmoud Abbas is now very old and has not been challenged. There's been no elections. Uh, the current Palestinian Authority doesn't have great legitimacy, but it is possible to imagine a reinvented Palestinian Authority in time. And that would be the best outcome, you know, mm. basically moving back to this two-state solution. Well, I guess uh, even on the part of the Palestinian Authority itself, uh, President Abbas has made it clear that PA is not really that interested in terms of going back to Gaza immediately. So with that in mind, do you think there are powers other than, say, Israel or the Palestinian Authority that might be interested in taking over the governance of Gaza? Yeah, in defense of, of President Mahmoud Abbas, um, you know, his position is that Israel is responsible for what's happened in the Gaza Strip, along with Hamas, of course. Uh, so why should he, his administration be given the very difficult task of going back to an area um, where they've been out of power for you know, almost two decades now and having to fix up the mess? And, of course, we, we will need an enormous amount of financial capital to rebuild the, the destruction and damage done in, in Gaza, and that will require the help of the international community. I think what is realistically possible is a regional coalition under perhaps the United Nations mandate, but you know, led by um, a Gulf state, Arab nations, 
like uh, Qatar and the UAE would support, even from Saudi Arabia and, from, and of course, neighboring Egypt and Jordan, it, it is possible. I mean, when you say who wants to do it, no one really wants to do it. It's a really tough job. But I think at the end of the day, um, these regional Arab states can be persuaded to step forward and to invest the necessary financial capital in rebuilding Gaza. And then it is possible to imagine in time a rehabilitated Palestinian authority taking over um, uh, responsibility of leadership. If there's some process of of elections of, of, the, of the population of Gaza taking a choice in this, and it is even possible to imagine Gaza becoming a thriving, um, you know, East Mediterranean uh, coastal city-state, uh, much like the the, the uh, city city-states of um, the UAE and, and Qatar and Kuwait are doing pretty well. You know, it's it's hard to imagine it from where we stand now, but that I think is what people will eventually decide is what they need to work towards. Mm. So, in the meantime, uh, most recently. Two American F-15 fighter jets have conducted what the United States uh, says as a, a self-defense strike on a weapons storage facility in eastern part of Syria in response to attacks on U.S. personnel in Iraq and Syria. So, um, in your observation, do you think uh, the the ongoing crisis in Gaza has prompted the United States to move up to shore up its troops, its military presence in the region? Yeah, that's a good question, Ding Hang. It speaks to the, the elephant in the room, as it were. Um, what everyone is afraid of, perhaps even including the government of the regime in Tehran, is a regional conflict involving um, a, a war between Israel and Iran, uh, because that, that would just be devastating for everyone. No one would win from that. So the fact that the U.S. has two um, aircraft carrier groups, two aircraft carriers along with the supporting flotilla, is an exceptional show of strength. And, of course, it's not just symbolic. You know, these aircraft carriers are, are used to launch those F-15 um, attacks. They are worried about Hezbollah in Lebanon, a, a proxy militia of uh, Iran, being drawn into the conflict. They're worried particularly about the many militia that are sponsored by uh, Iran in both Iraq and Syria. And so they're trying to do everything they can to say that we will not allow this to escalate. Now, of course, you know, that, that's an understandable sentiment, but they may not succeed. But that's the, that's the real worry. That's what everyone is worried about. As horrible as it is to see this um, level of human suffering in the Gaza Strip, it could even be worse if we had a regional war. And uh, as, as uh, extreme as this government in Israel does seem at the time being, mm. uh, and as uh, dismal as the situation is, I think there's actually agreement between Israel, Iran, and the US that that would not be good for anyone. So that is what they're trying to avert. Um, but we're dealing with um, sort of proxy conflict with groups like Hezbollah and the militias in, in Syria and Iraq. And the trouble with using proxy militia is is the state sponsors don't have complete control. And, of course, we know that the history of wars the last century has taught us things can cascade and spiral out of control very quickly. And that's the real anxiety at the moment. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. That was uh, Dr. Greg Barton, Professor of Global Islamic Politics with Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to World Today. Stay tuned. The delivery of China's first homegrown large cruise ship has attracted not only ardent tourists, but also Western skeptics. The latter are touting the idea the cruise ship can become an amphibious assault challenge and can be used for military purposes. Seriously? How true is such an assertion? Cruise through this and other questions on this week's Chat Lounge, anywhere you get your podcasts and on CGTN Radio. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. The EU says it is in complete disagreement with Turkey over stance on Hamas. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has referred to this Palestinian militant group as a liberation movement. However, on the other hand, the EU considers Hamas as a terrorist organization. The rebuke came as part of a new report released on Wednesday by the European Commission. 
The same report here has also criticized Turkey for what the EU claims as serious deficiencies in the functioning of democracy and the deterioration of fundamental human rights in the country. Is that really the case? So joining us now on the line is Dr. Wang Jing, associate professor with Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first of all,、uh, Professor Wang, based on your、uh, based on your observation of the situation surrounding the Gaza crisis over the past month or so,、uh, what do you make of、um, President Erdogan's Um, increasingly strong condemnation of Israeli's、uh, military operation in Gaza, as well as his,、uh, let's say, pretty consistent criticism of the kind of support that Israel has 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 been managed to receive from those Western allies. Yes, you are right that that during the past uh, uh, month, actually, uh, Turkey's uh, stance uh, over Israel as well as Over the Israeli-Palestinian recent uh, crisis, uh, actually significantly significantly transformed because at the very beginning, uh, Turkey uh, uh, adopted a very very rational as well as a very restrained stance. Because,、uh, for example,、um, we know that Hamas leadership, the、uh, most of the leadership now stay, still stayed in inside Turkey, inside Ankara as well as Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, after this recent、uh, outbreak of the war between Israel and Hamas, uh, uh, Turkey tried to、uh, to persuade the leadership leaders of the Hamas inside Turkey to stay low profile rather than to provoke the anger of the Israel. But then,、uh, as as the, the time goes by, I mean, as、um, as the, the warfare continues, especially after the、uh, large wave of humanitarian crisis emerged. Resulted from Israeli's air strikes and、uh, ground forces offensives,、uh, Turkey has、uh, started to change their stances. Especially, we know there there were now a lot of the protests、uh, against、uh, the Tur- Israel government and also the the, the criticism from the、uh, Turkey's government towards Israeli government、uh, become much、uh, more and more aggressive. So that makes then the Israel decision to withdraw is. Um, uh, ambassador as well as the diplomats from Turkey back to back home, and also the very escalating criticism between、uh, Turkey and、uh, and Israel against each other. So I think、uh, that then this this gave this led to the very final result of the so-called liberation movement,、uh, the ret- the rhetoric used by Turkey to describe the Hamas, and also this also led to a very division between Turkey and some Western countries. Over、mm. how to define this recent crisis between Israel and the Palestinians.、Mm. So Erdogan's stance on the Israel-Hamas war reportedly has been a source of concern in some European capitals as well as in Washington D.C. Now let's、um, take a look at the Turkish Foreign Ministry's response officially to this particular EU report we're we're talking about here. Uh, the foreign ministry of Turkey says it is necessary to remind the European Union, which they say is standing in the wrong place of history in the face of a civilian massacre, that policies based on universal values, international law, and humanitarian principles should be valid not only for Ukraine but also for all over the world, including the Middle Eastern region. So, do you think the foreign ministry of Turkey? Has made a valid point here. I, I think Turkey is also trying to, on the one hand, defend the rights of the Palestinians for their、uh, for their dreams of nation state, and on the other hand, Turkey highlights very uh, deep uh, the, the very deeply、um, uh, principle, but that but which is also ignored. Principle that is how should、uh, define the world. I mean, which, who has the right to define the world? Uh, for the, some Western countries and、uh, maybe some many uh, Israelis uh, under the, the, the description of Israeli government, that they believe okay, now Hamas attacks them, so they have the right to kill all the Hamas, even at the cost of many, much more、uh, civilians' lives of、uh, Palestinian civilians in the Gaza Strip could be lost. But then, from the perspective of uh, other, uh, the, I mean, Middle Eastern countries, especially including Turkey, of course. They believe, okay, this is not true. This cannot be happened because actually,、uh, 
this is wrong. That maybe it's wrong that for the Hamas to kill Israelis, but then you have no. This doesn't necessarily mean that Israelis have the right to kill the Palestinian civilians, especially now that the casualties of the Palestinian civilians and in the Gaza Strip have already reached a very historic level. This is very horrible things. So. Uh, so that is why uh, Turkey hopes to, to, to say, okay, now the Western countries, they can they have no right to represent the rest of the world because this world should be uh, the, the, should be verified. This world, the values and the judgment should also be based upon the common understandings of who are the uh, civilians and who have the right to be defend themselves. This cannot be monopolized by the only Western principles, but should be based upon the common understanding of all the world, especially the voices from the developing countries. So that is why I think the division emerged, yeah. and this division cannot be overcome very easily. Yeah, that's really difficult to overcome these divisions. So apart from this ongoing Gaza crisis, how do you look at this latest EU criticism targeting Turkey over the country's, say, democratic system or human rights, etc., etc.? As a matter of fact, following his um, electoral victory in May, we understand President Erdogan has already appointed a cabinet seen by many political observers as pretty Western-friendly. So with that in mind, why do you think the EU is still uh, rebuking Turkey. Well, the EU always uh, criticizing Turkey, no matter uh, how the Turkey transforms its own policies. We cannot. I think we have to remember that, that before Erdogan took the power in uh, in, in two thousand and two, mm. about two decades ago, actually, that it was the time that the EU always called for the the, the, the new leadership led by Erdogan to take power. I mean, that time they believe, okay, now if Erdogan wins the election, then it would be the so-called democratic value that would be represented. But then after Erdogan took power, I mean, then you started to criticize him, okay, you are not, in, you are not good enough and you should do much more better. So according to the principles of the European countries as well as American standards. So I think no matter what you, the Turkey do or what Turkey does, they always they are not able to uh, meet the demands and uh, satisfy the uh, EU's, uh, I mean, their their aspirations. So, so I think that is why the very deeply rooted divisions uh, emerged. And on the other hand, uh, you are right that uh, now Turkey they have the so-called the pro-Western, uh, so-called pro-Western cabinet. But mm-hmm. we have to know that Turkey's very goal is to try to attract more investment and try to. Uh, try to get the much more uh, international system to to restart uh, its economy from yeah. uh, from from the currency inflation. So that is why they hope to improve the ties with the Western countries. But rather than rather than necessarily mean that they will become continue to become the puppet government of the Western states. Hmm. So we still have about two minutes for our discussion with you today, Doctor One. I mean, the latest news we are talking about here is probably. A reminder to us that the the relations between Turkey and the EU、uh, remain fraught, remain uncertain. So, together with the United States, the EU is nowadays pushing Turkey to approve、uh, Sweden's accession to NATO. Do you think their latest disputes, their latest diplomatic row here, will add some new uncertainties to Sweden's NATO bid? I think.、Uh, I think yes. Yes, because this will add to new divisions between Turkey and some Western countries, especially、uh, when we are talking about uh, Sweden's uh, the, 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 the access to the NATO、uh, membership. But、uh, I think, on the other hand, we cannot forget that、um, uh, the NATO's membership access,、uh, based upon the bilateral understandings of, the, of some of the, the application states with Turkey, because also Turkey is a NATO membership. So I think Turkey has already, maybe has already、uh, swept the obstacles、uh, with Sweden、uh, over the、uh, accession of the NATO membership、uh, that has already、uh, been successful. So I don't think Turkey will、uh, continue to prevent this process of the membership of NATO for Sweden and other maybe countries and, and other、uh, northern European countries who has already. Uh, reached the agreement, maybe some of the secret agreement with Turkey government. So I think it will finally happen,、um, but、um, without the, I mean, too many,、uh, too much intervention from this recent Israeli and Palestinian crisis. 
Okay. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Dr. Wang Jing, associate professor with Northwest University in Xi'an, China. You are listening to World Today. For more, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. We'll be back after a short break. This is World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. In the U.S. city of Miami, the Israel-Hamas war and other foreign policy issues have dominated a third debate of Republican candidates for the American presidency. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has once again skipped this particular debate in order to hold a campaign rally on the other side of the same city. A few candidates attacked Donald Trump. Blaming him for the Republican Party's disappointing losses in a series of state and local elections on Tuesday, Trump has maintained a clear lead in the race for the Republican nomination. So, joining us now on the line is Harvey Zeldin, former vice president of the ABC TV network and a senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. Thank you very much for joining us, Harvey. Yeah, pleasure to be with you today. So, why do you think it is foreign policy issues that have dominated this particular debate on Wednesday in Miami? Was that a usual occurrence? No, it's not usual at all. American elections are mostly、uh, decided based on domestic issues, especially the economy. And if people、um, are、uh, thinking they're better off than they were the last time there was an election, but we're in a very different period these days. There is great concern nationally that the U.S. is now heavily involved. In the Ukraine war since February 2022, and and now since October 7th in Israel's war against Hamas and Hezbollah, who are both proxies for Iran, and there's also the possibility that North Korean leader Kim Jong Un could take advantage of the chaos and make a provocative move. And there's further concern by a few that China could make a move involving Taiwan during this moment of domestic U.S. division and uncertainty. As for Israel, which all candidates backed, it's a no-brainer. As Jews are a huge minority of voters in the Miami area and in some other parts of Florida, and in the whole United States, where they are, Jews vote and they contribute to candidates and parties. And also, in addition, except for immigrants entering the U.S. at southern borders, there are really few domestic issues to seize upon by Republicans, as the economy is doing so well under Joe Biden. The big domestic issue for Republicans is abortion, a battle they've been fighting for more than a half a century now,、uh, and、uh, they've been successful until recently. But now voters, women especially, are pushing back. Mm. So, what do you make of this particular phenomenon、uh, in which all five participating candidates in this Wednesday Miami debate,、uh, all of them have vowed to support Israel? They have uh, very uh, bad words about Hamas, but actually, some of them are actually against more money, more assistance for Ukraine. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's for a variety of reasons.、Uh, a broad coalition of Americans across most of the middle left to the far right of the political spectrum support Israel. It's because Jews are politically active, and because Christian evangelicals,、uh, who are great supporters of、uh, Republican Party, they need to have a final great war in Israel if, according to the Bible, their savior is to return. But as for Ukraine. Um, sticker shock and war fatigue have set in, and MAGA supporters, led by Trump, want to use that money in the U.S. It's really another case of America first pushing back against a much less powerful、uh, domestic constituency.、Mm. So, by the way. Um, what do you make of the Democratic victories in a series of off-year local elections on Tuesday in America? Some of these、uh, Republican candidates are blaming Donald Trump for the Republican losses here. Do you think it is fair to blame Trump for that? Well, I guess I'd say Trump has part of the blame to share. Trump's a political chameleon. 
He once supported abortion rights and other liberal causes. But as an opportunist, as many U.S. politicians are, he courted the right-wing evangelicals and appointed many of them to high-level positions, like, uh, for example, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And uh, that doesn't consider the views and wishes of a majority of Americans or even a majority of uh, Republicans. So the party has been captured by religious reactionaries, and that's the real problem. The elections on Tuesday show that American women and men want to have women control their own bodies. But Republicans who never support babies after they're born just want to score cheap political points. And I always think about what Abraham Lincoln said. He made a wise observation. He said, you can fool all the people some of the time, and you can fool some of the people all of the time, but you can't feel, fool all the people all the time. So now the chickens are coming home to roost, and it's the Republicans who are paying the price. Okay. So how would you look at Donald Trump's um, strategy of you know, not attending the Republican debates so far? Do you think he is um, somehow calculating on his mind that doing so, skipping these uh, earlier rounds of debates, would actually help him maintain his lead among the Republicans? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Trump is one of the most mentally challenged and unstable presidents in American history. But he's leading in the polls. And sadly, that says a great deal about the contrast in the U.S. and Chinese political systems. But Trump is smart to stay out of the debates because by going in and being subject to discussion of his moral, financial, political liabilities, he's better off doing the counter-programming he's doing uh, like he did the other night. And he's better off concentrating on his many court cases in which he is uh, enmeshed now. So I think he has everything to lose by going into the debates and nothing to gain. Hmm. So following uh, Donald Trump's lead within the Republican voters, polls are currently suggesting that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are actually in a very distant second to, to Donald Trump. Now, it seems some of um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' existing billionaire donors, they are cooling on in terms of throwing their support to, to DeSantis, and some are even reportedly considering shifting their support to Donald Trump. Why do you think this is the case? Well, I think that DeSantis is not a very likable person, and that's come out. I think he's an extremist, and I also uh, think that he peaked too early. But really, the bottom line is, in the U.S., money talks and BS walks. Elections are funded by billionaires and the vast army of lobbyists that they employ. If they sense any weakness in a candidate— They're going to go elsewhere and pursue their own selfish interests. For them, Trump is literally the devil. They know. And even if he ends up ruining the country, he will richly reward the rich as he did when he was president. Mm. And their hope is that he'll continue to do so. Okay. So in other words, they they are not so optimistic that DeSantis would roll out policies in favor of the uh, in favor of the rich class once he is uh, he is in the White House. No, I, I think it's that DeSantis just looks weak. He's come across as okay. weak. He's not done well uh, in the debates. Uh, he's rumored to have a terrible uh, personality, and so I think all that comes out. So the the rich uh, in America who control the the politics. Uh, in America, want to have a sure thing. And Trump's the devil they know, and they think that uh, Trump will give them what what yeah. they want. So they're going to put their money uh, with Trump, uh, but I think it's going to be to the detriment of the country and the world if yeah. Trump wins. Yeah, thank you very much for putting that into perspective. That was Harvey Zoldin, former vice president of the ABC TV network and a senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. 
Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. China has just hosted the Inter-Civilizational Communication and Global Development Forum in Beijing, aiming to foster dialogues among different civilizations. The three-day event has attracted some 150 officials, scholars, and business leaders from over 30 countries. My colleague Gao Yingshi sat down at this particular event with Dr. John Fortin, chair emeritus of the Brookings Institute, to get his understanding of the issue. Fortin is among the keynote speakers at this forum. Mr. Sultan, thank you for willing to take our interview. And my first question is: Well, in your view, what are the key components that enable a successful dialogue and communication between distinct civilizations like China and the United States? Well, I think the starting point is to say that、uh, dialogue says exactly what it says, which is you've got to start talking one to the other, and which hasn't been happening very much in recent years, as you know. And I'm a big believer that if you simply put in the time. And you are well motivated and of good heart. You will make progress, because people、uh, people like to understand one another. They like to think they're making an effort to understand someone else, and they like to think that the policies that they are adopting or creating are coming out of、uh, of understanding and knowledge. And so I don't, I don't think it's that complicated. I think it's a question of implementation, which is a question of desire and a question of discipline and a question of. Priorities. And my second question is: As you mentioned in the morning, you mentioned the book of Clash of Civilizations. And throughout history, we have seen like situations where civilizations have either clashed or collaborated. But in your opinion, what key lessons can we draw from historical interactions to enhance those inter-civilizational communication in the modern context? Well, I think the interesting question that that came up in my mind is. I think what China is proposing is admirable, aspirational, even inspirational, but also extremely difficult to achieve. So, I think all of us should applaud China for what it's trying to do, and we should then watch to see whether China does what it says it's going to do. And if it does, we should applaud more. And I think every country in the world should join in this effort because if if one could achieve it, it would be a real step forward for mankind. And we all know we could use it because as the world gets smaller and more complicated,、um, we do need a kind of better way of looking at、uh, our collective future, because it becomes increasingly obvious that our future is collective. Indeed, and the globalization brought civilization closer than ever. But in recent years, we've seen the populism and backwind of deglobalization. How we should deal with those kinds of issues? Well, the way I look at the populism, at least in my country.、Uh, I, I think I understand it, and it's it's、uh, rational. It's not irrational.、Uh, many ordinary Americans feel, with good reason, that the system is、uh, that, the, that the leaders of the of the country have used the system for their benefit at the expense of ordinary people. And when I say leaders, I'm not talking just about political leaders. I'm talking about leaders of all of all kinds of all institutions. And I think that that's broadly correct. Then to make matters worse, many of those ordinary Americans. Have not done well economically, and then to make matters worse, many of those ordinary Americans are the ones who have been asked to send their sons and daughters off to wars that they don't understand and don't necessarily agree with, and many of those sons and daughters have come back either dead or maimed, or they can't get a job, they become drug addicts, and so there's a lot, a lot of anger, and that anger is not going away soon. In fact, most recently, if you saw the polls, former President Trump. Is now ahead of Joe Biden in five of the six so-called swing states, and more than that, the more diverse the state, the better Trump is doing, and more than that, Trump right now is telling his followers. He's saying to his followers, "I am your retribution," which is a kind of an extension of his former narrative, and it it seems to be compelling to people, which is、uh, which tells you how, how angry they are. So my point of all that is, 
I think until that anger is addressed, and until leaders are responsive to the people, until that happens, you're not going to be in a sufficiently healthy state to have an intelligent intercivilizational conversation. Yes. And considering the unique cultural and political landscape of China and United States, how do you see the future of inter-civilizational communication evolving between those two powers, and how we could reach a sort of a mutual understanding between China and the United States? Well, the first thing I would say is that, again, looking at through, through American eyes, I would say that the average level of understanding on the part of ordinary Americans about China is very, very low, and that has to be addressed. By the way, not just with China, but with other countries as well. Um, this morning, as you know, I, I cited a survey done recently by Frank Luntz. And Frank, looking at the survey data, his conclusion was, his, his recommendation to the Chinese leadership was, you should adopt a massive initiative on tourism and get as many Americans to China as you possibly can because nothing beats personal experience. Uh, nothing beats it. And he himself feels that way about his own experience. And, I, and, and, I, and he's right, uh, because no amount of talking, no amount of reading books, no amount of reading newspapers, no amount of television can you su can substitute personal interaction. And, um, and I think that's, it, sounds, it sounds almost too simple, but I think it's actually, a, it's actually a, very, a very sound, clever answer. China is promoting people-to-people -people exchanges, and we have those kinds of exchanges program on multi-level. For example, educational programs between different colleges and the tourism programs you mentioned earlier. Among all these kinds of programs, which one do you think is the most effective in terms of promoting mutual understanding? Well, first of all, I think the single most important thing are educational exchanges. And there, just to, be, just to show you where we are, this is roughly right. I think sitting here today, there are something like 275,000 Chinese students in American universities, and there are something like 300 American students in Chinese universities. That's just appalling. But that's, I think, the single most important. Beyond education, I think cultural, artistic, and other kinds of people-to-people -people exchanges uh, come next. And I think, I think it's easy to underestimate the value of people-to-people. People-to-people is really extremely important. Uh, I would say right alongside the relationship between the business community or the, or the economic relationship. People-to-people -people is an extremely important pillar uh, of stability. And so if I were either a Chinese leader or an American leader, that's the thing I'd be looking at. Dr. John Thornton, Chair Emeritus with the Brookings Institution, talking to my colleague Gao Yingshi. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You're listening to World Today, I'm Ding Haning Beijing. The Chinese mainland has warned Estonia against letting Taiwan open a new office in this Baltic country. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbing on Wednesday urged the Estonian side to abide by its commitment to the One China Principle and effectively safeguard the political basis of the bilateral ties. Joseph Wu, leader of the Foreign Affairs Department of Taiwan Authorities, is currently on a trip to the three Baltic countries. Taiwan has already set up an office in the country of Lithuania, stoking frictions between Beijing and Brussels. So joining us now on the line is Professor Cui Hongjian with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance, Beijing Foreign Studies University. Welcome back. So, uh, why do you think Estonia is moving to allow Taiwan to open a new office? As we know, uh, just like what happened before in Lithuania, uh, I think now some politicians in uh, Estonia, Estonia try to copy uh, the model of Lithuania. Uh, I think they try to get some maybe uh, benefits from these uh, actions. Uh, 
for example, for some politicians, they try to get some more visibility and uh, buy a uh, you know shape uh, image. But uh, as as Estonia, as the small countries, it can it even can cha- challenge China. Uh, I mean, a big country. And of course, at the same time, they also try to uh, convince the uh, ordinary people in Estonia that uh, once uh, the government in Estonia do something in that way, perhaps it will uh, bring some benefits from its uh, cooperation or economic uh, relations with Taiwan or some other. So I think now, uh, yes, it, it, it gives a very, neat, I mean, another very bad case uh, for these uh, countries try to challenge the so-called one-China principle. Mm-hmm. So I think it's understandable that uh, from China's perspective, uh, it could be, uh, you know, stopped. And uh, I think China will do, uh, it could do, to stop any kind of tendencies in Baltic states and also in other European countries at large. Mm. Estonia claims that the plan's Taiwan office is actually in line with the EU policy. Uh, this country's foreign ministry, uh, foreign minister actually said through a statement that just like many other uh, EU countries, Estonia is ready to accept the establishment of a non-diplomatic, economic, or cultural representation of Taipei in order to promote such ties. But what is your take on the on the prime minister's um, on the foreign minister's wording here? I think this uh, foreign minister's uh, you know words is a kind of uh, sophistry. As we know, uh, according to the one China principle, uh, it's uh, uh, as clear as possible that uh, even on some uh, detailed uh, issues like the name of the uh, representative from uh, Taiwan and some other European countries. As we know, according to the uh, mutual uh, consensus, that uh, there will not be any name of Taiwan. I think it just happened for uh, Lithuania. Because as we know, in the history of uh, relations between mainland China and uh, Taiwan, there was a stage of so-called uh, One China, One Taiwan. And especially raised uh, from some, uh, uh, you know, Taiwan uh, yeah. dependency force. So I think it's a very, very clear, I mean, uh, uh, right line uh, for China that uh, there could, perhaps there will, they, it's, it, it's okay for some uh, economic or long political, uh, long official relations uh, between European countries and Taiwan, but there will not be any reflection uh, even from the name of the representative agent for Taiwan in any European countries, because mm-hmm. that's something happening that way, which means that uh, there will be a challenge from uh, to towards this uh, one China principle. Mm. So, like you suggested earlier, uh, one possibility is that um, some non-Baltic EU countries might follow suit in terms of allowing Taiwan to open offices in their countries. Uh, so, with that in mind, do you think? Estonia's behavior will add some new uncertainty to this overall uh, China-EU relations? So far, I think that uh, it's just as some uh, Baltic state, I mean, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, they try to copy the model, try to challenge this uh, one-China principle. Uh, But of course, on some other non-Baltic European countries, uh, there are also some politicians that try to do something uh, to put the you know issue of so-called Taiwan on the table uh, in the relations between China and uh, Europe, and uh, but I think that uh, as we understand, because this uh, one China principle uh, has been a, a very important part for this uh, diplomatic relations between China and any other European countries. So once some countries in Europe try to challenge this uh, principle, I think it will have to face. Any kind of, I mean, uh, response from China, of course, negative response. I mean, mm. but of course, I think now, uh, from China's perspective, China also try to uh, find out some more constructive solutions. And if we look at the recent exchange between China and the European countries, always uh, most of the European countries, they are uh, keep the, they are trying to uh, keep the 
promise and uh, to, you know, so, uh, insist on this one uh, China policy. But of course, now the big question is, how could we find out the, uh, the very, very logical relationship between so-called one China principle and uh, one China policy? Uh, indeed, some European countries, they are trying to uh, challenge the one China principle uh, by taking use of the redefined one China policy. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I think now China needs to have some more clear attitude and to even uh, to get some uh, uh, retaliation when something happens mm-hmm. in a battle. So, if, um, hip- hypothetically, if there is uh, additional frictions uh, between the Chinese mainland and the European Union or some individual EU countries, uh, do you think that kind of scenario will bring Taiwan any so-called benefits? And by the way, do you think we are likely to see one day a scenario in which the Taiwan question becomes a main point of danger in the EU-China relations, something we seem to have already seen in the in the China-U.S. relations? To some degree, especially at this moment, perhaps for Taiwan administration, we think that, okay, it, it, it will give some uh, benefit, especially in Europe region. As we know, uh, in the last uh, decades, uh, because they are not uh, so-called a substantial Taiwan issue on the table, especially officially, between China and European countries. So perhaps for some uh, uh, politicians from Taiwan, they do think that it's a benefit. But I think on the other side, that uh, it will give some more dangers to the relations between Taiwan and mainland China. So I think for on this regard, the politicians in Taiwan need to have some more careful, uh, I mean, thinking, especially... Uh, once there are some, uh, you know, damage or some, uh, you know, problems for the stability of Taiwan, I think these politicians should take all of these responsibilities. But of course, I think now, uh, it, it's a little bit different, I mean, the Taiwan issue in the relations between China and Europe. As we know, uh, the United States always try to take use of the uh, Taiwan as a card mm. and to try to get some advantage and uh, compete uh, on competing with China. But I think for most of the European countries, they do not have any kind of, uh, you know, strategic competition uh, consideration with yeah. China. So, of course, some of them just try to get some so-called benefits, maybe for some personal or for some, uh, you know, individual uh, political party. I don't think that it will become the same uh, stories or sayings mm. uh, uh, regarding to the Taiwan issue between China and EU. Yeah, thank you very much. That was Professor Cui Hongjian joining us from Beijing Foreign Studies University. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Bye for now.